Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Katie Emery Zenger. Katie is the founder and lead consultant of Zenger Strategies, LLC, and has over eight years of professional experience managing and evaluating public health interventions and grant programs. Katie's expertise lies primarily in public health program development and adolescent health promotion, as well as equitable healthcare access, community engagement, and nonprofit leadership. She is a skilled facilitator, strategic planner, and grant writer with experience in coalition building and coordinating stakeholders for impact. Katie has served as a program officer and director of grants for a private SC foundation for over five years, where she has expanded and refined the organization's multi-million dollar contraceptive access and teen pregnancy prevention programs. Most recently, she managed a pediatric concussion project for the Brain Injury Association of South Carolina and the Healthcare Workforce Task Force for the South Carolina Institute of Medicine and Public Health. Katie also serves as a senior associate with the Weathers Group, where she provides qualitative research analysis services, develops detailed implementation plans, and provides custom reports as needed for special projects. She has also provided strategic planning for numerous nonprofits, including Darkness to Light, Fact Forward, and the Women's Rights and Empowerment Network. Katie graduated from Clemson University in 2006 with a Bachelor of Science degree, and in 2011, she earned her master's degree in public health and a graduate certificate in women's and gender studies from the University of South Carolina's Arnold School of Public Health. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest's choice. And this episode, the charity is the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration, or the AFTD. Please join me in donating. The link is in the show notes. And Katie's bio is a mouthful, and this conversation explores so many different depths of what it means to be human. Katie very vulnerably shares about her history with disordered eating. And what I find most helpful about Katie's story is she identifies that a lot of human behaviors don't exist in complete binaries. And she identifies that while she might never have been clinically diagnosed as anorexic or bulimic, and while she never looked considerably unhealthy, she had a very troubled relationship with food. And there's a point in this conversation where she talks about the beliefs and thoughts that she had about herself, and it can get a little bit gnarly. They were really tough. And so I really applaud Katie's ability to be public and communicate about it. I really trust that it's going to be of service to you, the listener. We also talk about the pitfalls of personal development and 
ways that we need to both learn new ways of being, but also unlearn a lot of our conditioned ways of being. And lastly, we talk about a topic that is very near and dear to me, healing through public speaking. Katie offers a wonderful course. It's called Inspired Speaking. And this iteration is actually coming to a close pretty much as we speak. I really hope that she continues to do the work because public speaking is an avenue in which we can really grow so much, both as a communicator, but also as a human. I know a lot of my development, a lot of my confidence has been forged through growing as a public speaker and a communicator. It permeates into all areas of my life. Katie has such a fun and infectious energy and we really jammed for an hour and a half and it was a breeze. I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation as usual. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath and enjoy what Katie has for us today. Katie, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hi, Mike. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. I'm so excited to explore the wide variety of topics that we have teed up together. I know that we're going to cover some amazing ground. And before we go there, I love asking this question as a, a starter of the interview. What was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Oh, I love this question. I think I was really lucky. Dinner table or dinner time for the Zenger family was not sacred, but definitely a thing that we did. We had weekly dinners. I mean, we, and we sat down to eat together every night that wasn't an event at school or something like that, right? So usually dad would cook and then mom and I would clean. And I have a little brother, Jay. And we'd talk about our day or listen to what mom had to say. Um, the, the TV was off during dinner always. I think that's like the, what happens when you have like hippie academic parents. They're like, no television. <laughs> They're like, these days it'd be like, no screens, family togetherness time. But it didn't really feel that forced, you know? It was just nice to be, to be with everybody. And so uh, dad was the better cook for sure. And so, but whoever would cook the other parent would clean so if mom cooked then dad cleaned if mom cleaned then dad cooked mm -hmm. right so like there was always that really nice balance of gender roles in my house which I think just seeing that on the daily was a really important part of like how I grew up so hmm. I love a family dinner man <laughs> awesome yeah yeah <laughs> I, I I get such a wide variety of answers and that, that's one of the reasons I love that question and cool yeah, I mean, something something else that I'm after with that question is it, it seems like you were probably, I mean, I, I'm jumping ahead a couple steps probably, but it seems like you were encouraged to share about yourself and to be yourself and, and maybe you weren't pigeonholed necessarily into uh, this is the way things are. I'm imagining if you had hippie academic parents, like <laughs> maybe there was a... a hard nudge to go to college, but there, there was probably an openness of what you like, what, what does Katie want to do with her life? And I'm curious, like, were you encouraged to explore what mattered to you? Or was there a certain expectation of, of how you were supposed to be? I would say fully, like fully allowed to be who I was. And now I'm going to 
tear up a little bit because I'm just feeling very sensitive today, like very open and vulnerable. But like my dad, who's passed now, definitely instilled that in me and my little brother. Like be like definitely that with the old Bob Dylan line, right? Can't can't please everyone, so you have to please yourself. Mm. We there were high academic standards. I'm the oldest, you know, so doing well in school was definitely an indicator of, of like worth and worthiness for me. But like in terms of who I was, what I wanted to be, what I wanted to read, like I was encouraged fully to be myself. And I really felt that like, especially with my dad, I felt unconditionally loved in that way, which is like, I just think not that many people get no. two good parents. Mm-hmm. Like I got super lucky in that space for sure. Yeah. I can gratefully say the same thing. And yeah. my God, it's, I, I think that life in a lot of ways, it's like, even if you're set up really perfectly, it still is really fucking challenging. <laughs> and if, yeah. if you don't get parents who are, even if you get parents who unconditionally love you, but don't really support, I guess that's not unconditional love, but if you have parents who really love you, but are like, but this is what we expect of you. Like, right. oof, that's, a, that's a separate challenge. Or that you're not allowed to be or do something. I mean, I think that there was some practicality around what we talked about with school, but I actually appreciate that long-term. Like I really wanted to go to Tulane. Like I got into, I got into some fancy private colleges, you know, and like, to Duke and stuff. And like, they were just like, Katie, we can pay Clemson, like in-state Clemson, you can go and not have any debt. Like, so, but it was like, if mm-hmm. we want to do Duke, like we've got this much for you, but they were very open to that. Right. So like, I appreciated that that was the conversation. And I think a lot of anything that I felt like pushed to do a huge part of that is, is really on me. Like mm-hmm. I really could have been whatever I wanted to be, but I definitely, you know, internalized that patriarchal, like gendered idea of being like, must be a good girl, like must like do what I'm supposed to do. This is what my parents want. You know, um, even though there's a huge rebel side of me, like I would, that I identify with, I think like, it's hard to escape that cultural thing that gets put on girls, especially oldest girls, right. That superwoman yeah. complex stuff that definitely the perfectionism thing. So despite having all of that support and love from my parents, where if I pushed and if I had said, this is what I want to be an artist, this is what I want to do. They would have been like, we got you go, go do it. They wouldn't have been disappointed in me, Mm -hmm. but I think I still needed, I still, I needed to prove something to myself and to the world. I had like something to prove, you know? Yeah. Yes. So one of the many things that we had teed up to talk about today was your history of disordered eating. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of times it comes from a pressure, whether it's familial or societal. And if you're open to it, I would, I would love to hear just how, how that came about for you and what were some of the ways that you were able to, to be with it and cope with it so that it's not, you know, running your life anymore. Yeah. It's a great way to tee it up. I'll say, I think, or I know, or I feel that the eating disorder recovery, like world space, language, research 
we're at this massive siege at the beginning of what I hope is a massive sea change. So I'm going to talk about it in the ways that I connect with it. I am not like an eating disorder recovery professional. I am just a person with lived experience. And so there's a lot happening right now in terms of how we understand this, right? How we understand what it does in our brain. Because if you look at the DSM-5, so it's technically, you know, disordered eating has its own chunk of space in the DSM-5, but the definitions are really narrow. Like anorexia is like restricting food, restricting calorie intake to the point, you know, where you're starving yourself, like, and you have specific habits. Bulimia is that that includes only the binge and the purge. So it doesn't kind of cover a lot of what I, like, I don't think I would have been diagnosable in a lot of ways because I had, like, it was a combo. It was about what can I do to stay small and thin and like, but still be able to make it through my day, like work. Cause I worked out a lot Um, in college and in high school for fencing. So we can talk about that some. So I would say it started when I was in the seventh grade. That's when I just started to notice that like it mattered how I looked, right? I look back at pictures of myself from like, you know, late elementary school to the beginning of middle school. And I'm wearing the wildest shit. Like it's fantastic. There's so many colors. I'm wearing leggings. I'm wearing these giant sequin pins, like that I found of like a cat pin the size of my head. It's like, a, I'm wearing the wildest stuff because I got super into fashion and I had a bunch of like old Vogues. And so the, the obsession with like fashion and art was both this like beautiful thing, but also this a thing that really triggered a lot of the eat, disordered eating and what I thought my body should look like. So I wasn't I started off as, I guess, more of a classic anorexic. I just wasn't eating. I was running a lot. I just, and I was hiding the fact that I wasn't eating from my parents, even at the dinner table. Actually, I have like a real weird dinner table story that I can tell here. So my, my sweet dad and my sweet mom, like they had no idea. They just don't understand. Like so many of the like boomer generation of which my parents definitely are a part, right? They like an eating disorder is like, just so strange to them. And I think mental health in general, like having a better understanding of anxiety and depression, I think that's something that our generation can bring to our kids and have like a little little more sympathy and empathy as we raise the next generation. But um, my dad, one day, they did start to notice I was getting thick because they love me. They know what I looked like. I had, you know, grown up, I gotten taller, but I wasn't getting any, like you could start to see the bones. And a dad they just didn't know what to do. So they got mad. Right. So my dad made me sit down at that dinner table that you brought up in the first place and just put a pile of like pulled chicken. He had like grilled chicken and like pulled, it was literally like a pile of it on a plate. And was like, you can't leave the table until you eat all this chicken. Mm. Cause I would, it had been like weeks of me like hiding and like, they were like, what did you eat for lunch? And like, why aren't you eating? Like they finally, they could feel something was wrong. And like, I just sat there, I ate some of it and he let me go to bed eventually, but it's like, parents just don't know what to do. Like, like you're going to sit here and just eat this chicken. And it's like, nobody wants to do that anyway, like let alone a person with anorexia. And then, so I switched because they found out I switched to being bulimic. I was like, fine, I'll eat. I'll just puke it up. So fun mindset. So that was like high school. You can, you can hide it a little better, but then I was like, learned everything about calories. So it was all mixed up together. And like the current eating, if you go to like an eating disorder 
clinic or something to fix you. You really only hear those like more classic tales of like, mm-hmm. this is the eating disorder. And she stopped eating. She looks totally emaciated, like refuses to eat, is scared of fat. And then you have to, you know, they're physically super ill and you have to like feeding tube them back to life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the vast majority of femme people with eating disorders, you can't, it's going to look invisible because I didn't look rail thin. Mm-hmm. I was very thin for me as a growing person, mm-hmm. but I was not, you wouldn't be concerned about me if you right. saw me. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's a huge piece that the eating disorder world is coming to terms with. It's like, just, just cause you don't look skinny. doesn't yes. mean you haven't been like having disordered eating habits. And I think that's something we have to like, ugh, really change the way we think about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. That was a lot in one thing in one answer, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll keep prodding along, but I just, sure. as a, a reflection on what you said, I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it seems like so many movements are happening that are intersecting with each other that yeah. the, the undertone is actually very similar. So one of the things I'm hearing is that in a disordered eating clinic that it, there's a pretty black and white binary of like, you either yeah. are anorexic or you're not. And yes. it's like, there's like a th- certain thresholds where you, you have it or you don't. And it's like, right. you're either male or you're female or you're either <laughs> right. What, right. Democrat or you're Republican. There's, there's right. so many ways in which we say like, there isn't room for both. And one of the beautiful things that's happening right now is we're, we're understanding there's nuance in this, right? That everything exists on a spectrum and uh, disordered eat. You, it's not like you either have it or you don't have it. I mean, there are right. people with like minorly unhealthy relationships with food and then yep. there's people with severely and everything in between. So- Absolutely. I think that's like a, that's a beautiful way to say it. I think us, I forget what your academic background is, but mine's public health. And so that's still considered like a soft science, right? There's that whole supposed dichotomy between the hard sciences of like physics and mathematics and, you know, that certain types of like biological research. And then like our soft sciences, which like needs qualitative research, needs the how, needs the person, needs getting, it's digging into the, all the gray area and the spectrums of the thing, Right. Of, of answers to questions. And I think something, and psychology is still considered a soft science, but in its, in psychology, the psychology field's quest to become a respected field, they started h- hard quantifying things that really can't be quantified. And I think that's why we have the DSM-5. So you're exactly, you're, you're saying it exactly right. Like, I don't, that's what I was trying to say when I was like, I couldn't, I don't think I would have been diagnosed with anything because I don't meet any of the criteria enough of the criteria to get diagnosed with that, but I very obviously had an eating disorder. Yes. Right. So what does that look like? Then we fall, we fall between the cracks or we don't get to put that on ourselves. And I'd like to say, so my brain exploded. I went to this kind of like a group where we're starting to start, we're trying to start like a peer support group for people who had had eating disorders through the, through NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Alliance, I think is what it is. And we were trying to start one in Columbia, South Carolina, where I live. And I got there and we were talking about things that I had always thought 
about recovering from disordered eating, just like you would think about recovery, how people think about recovery from substance abuse. So we call it recovery because it's never finished and you're never really a former addict. And that's a really like loaded term, of course, but something about being in recovery, like recognizes all that gray area, all that spectrum. Right. Yes. So, and gives it grace and gives it, gives you the space to define it the way that you want to be a person in recovery. So I was like, Oh, that's totally how I think about being in an eating disordered world. Right. Like, okay. I'm not like, I'm not only eating 800 calories a day anymore and, and running five miles. I'm like, you know, it, it, you get better slowly. And then the eating disorder behaviors come in and hit you on the, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, like you get rid of one and then the other one pops up. Like one. So it's like the, because it's so socially acceptable, like it starts creeping back in because to get fat or to let yourself go is still one of these things that like, we are terrified of Mm. like, think about that. Like think about every movie, every, I don't know anything where it's like, Oh, she lost the weight. Like now she's hot. (laughs) It's, it's a lot. It's hard. So it's hard to undo, not just like the neurochemical things that brought you like all the great dopamine and serotonin that that's eating disorders do that. Like it provides this like chemical feedback loop in your brain where you're like, I'm stressed. What can I control? Oh, I can control my body and what I put into it. Mm. Right. So that's where it catches you. And it's like, it is like an addiction because you're like, the world is uncontrollable chaos, entropy. We know this, right. But we don't like to think about it as human beings. We like to pretend we have control. We will fight the idea that we don't have control over things. So that's why eating disorders can be so like, just like juicy and lovely and you want to have it you know, and you're rewarded for it socially. So again, not only do you have like a neuro feedback pattern that says, yes, like stop eating. That means you're good. Like, great. You can control these things. Then you also have all the societal pressures outside of it. So I think recovering from an eating disorder is just like, and you can't ever be abstinent. Like you can from substance use, right? At least you can say heroin, no thanks. See you later with food, you have to eat food mm-hmm. and you can't get away from diets. Like there's just no way they're all around you all the time. People talk about it constantly. Mm-hmm. And once you know, once you start noticing that, I, I it's, it's really, mm-hmm. it's fascinating how you see how much people will talk about diets, fatness and how scared they, everyone is about being labeled fat. I guess I, I never really thought about uh, disordered eating as such a socially accepted thing, but it certainly, yeah. especially for women, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. And I would say for men or male people who identify as men, mm-hmm. it's like where workaholism is the, is the very socially acceptable, right? Like yeah. grind culture, work 80 to 100 hours and it's not looked at as an addiction in the same way. It, it really, it very much is, and can it be is. like like an addiction. Yeah, but it's not looked at as such in the way that if you tell someone I'm doing heroin, like that, of course that <laughs> is going to be, you know, no, no one's going to be uh, clapping for you saying how amazing that is. And so, right. 
I think about that just in terms of like the types of drugs that we say are bad versus good. Like so many people in grind culture or whatever, they love Adderall, right? Yes. Get an Adderall prescription, figure it out. You got to be able to focus. You have to be able to work all these hours in order to make it. So great. Get an Adderall prescription. Adderall is meth. They're the same. They do the same thing in your brain, mm-hmm. right? Like your body does not say, Ooh, this is for rednecks. <laughs> I shouldn't take this. Just because it's a pill in a prescription bottle doesn't mean it's not an addiction, a problem, and something that's that's that can affect your life significantly. So I'm not here. I'm not hate like take the meds you need to take for your brain to be functional. I'm not, like whatever you need as a neuroatypical or neurotypical person, like get it. I'm on Prozac. I'm not hating on meds for what you need. I'm just saying there's a lot of like casual or non-medically needed amphetamine use Mm -hmm. that's normalized because of that hustle grind culture stuff that's killing us Mm -hmm. anyway sorry so what what has been most supportive for you in your i mean you didn't call it this but it it sounds like it's been a a journey of healing where you have at least really a you, you've developed more of a positive relationship with food. And I, I would love to hear what's been supportive for you. Is there, were there role models you looked up to? Like, were there books that you read? Were there, I don't know, courses, workshops, any, anything at yeah. all, coaches, therapists? Love that. Well, I mean, therapy always talk, I think, especially for disordered eating, talk therapy can be really helpful. So like, Cognitive behavioral therapy is what I've done with a licensed practicing social worker. Like that's she's a therapist. That's what she does because I have generalized anxiety disorder and how it manifests itself is in the disordered eating. Hmm. So like most of the time, what you, like when I was talking about con- control is almost always the basis for an eating disorder or for disordered eating, right? Like that's what you want. You're looking for control. However, it, it's usually also a symptom of an underlying mental health issue mm-hmm. that gets exacerbated during stressful times. So that's why CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy in particular, is good for eating disorders because you have to deal with the thoughts as they come up, be able to recognize those thoughts as like helpful or not helpful, true or not true, and or whatever on the spectrum potentially on there is. And it's, it was always useful for me the the conveyor belt technique. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. For bad thoughts. Okay. So like imagine a grocery store conveyor belt. I get it. Right. Yes. Yeah. So like, and then you just, you like the, you imagine the word or whatever you're saying, whatever you're thinking, you're imagining the thought on that conveyor belt and you just let it, you like see it. And then you just let it roll off and like off the edge of the conveyor belt. I like the one where I put it in a bubble and then I imagine beating it to death with a baseball bat. Uh-huh. So like that feels a little more powerful for me. Yeah. <laughs> like dealing with the negative thoughts. Yeah. So definitely would say talk therapy as like a basis. My favorite thing, something that has switched my brain in a way that like therapy couldn't quite get to, conversations and love for my husband couldn't quite get to, like somehow the podcast maintenance phase which please link to it in the, you know, show notes or whatever, but like maintenance phase takes the research around health, obesity, diets, fatness, breaks it down and turns it on its head because like they're methodology nerds. So for me, and they're hilarious. So it's just like beautiful piece of like fat activism that they're doing by saying like, 
look at this diet. This is, this is insane. Like the Carl Lagerfeld diet or just Weight Watchers in general. And so it's entertaining. It's fantastic, but it's also loaded with basically all of this like cultural myth busting storytelling that I'm like, why was, why, why am I assuming that fat is bad, like unhealthy for me? Right. That is the assumption. That is a base assumption, but like, that's actually not true. The research doesn't say that being your, the BMI is actual bullshit. Like it's completely been, it was never a good, even the guy who invented it said, this is not a good indicator. This is not a good wow. measure of health. Right. Just look at an NBA player or like a foot, any football player. Are they in bad shape? Are they like, on, well, maybe with steroids, like, you know, <laughs> but no, think, of, think of Serena Williams, right? Like the goat absolutely there's no way that her BMI is in the quote unquote normal space. Mm -hmm. No, no way. She's full of muscle. That's insanity. So yeah, that's, I'll get on a tangent about that anytime, but as a public health person who was taught, you know, about obesity prevention in the time of Michelle Obama's like move, like school lunches, working on childhood obesity to learn that the science behind all of that is pretty flawed. And we need to rethink the way that we, talk and think about food with our children and with each other is like, uh, that was a real important paradigm and brain shift for me. Mm -hmm. So a, a couple of curiosities, one of them, I would love to run through a specific rep, if you will, around yeah. what co cognitive behavioral therapy would look like. And like maybe an example of uh, a thought that might pop in and like, what does cognitive behavioral therapy have you do specifically with that thought? So like, if you could run through that. Oh, okay, sure. So <laughs> this is not fun. So I will say like the Liber the liberatory and like freedom feelings of not of getting out of a disordered eating space are truly amazing. Like that's because once you realize how much you talk to yourself in the most negative, horrible ways, like I would say things to myself that I would never say to another human being ever. So like the, the, the bad thought or a unhelpful and untrue thought would be me looking in the mirror and saying to myself, you are disgusting. You are absolutely gross. We're, cursing is fine. I heard you guys before, right? Like you're, you're fucking nasty. Like you're an absolute pig. Why the fuck didn't you get up and go to the gym? I mean, it's just total berating, right? Like, so it's me talking to me in the mirror, looking at myself and saying, you're fat and gross and you shouldn't go outside. <laughs> like, that was fine. I could kind of tear myself away, but it's not really a great way to start your day. So I, so you would, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you can take a thought like that. You can recognize, oh my God, that's so mean, right? Like it's, it's so in, in therapy, my fabulous therapist, Melinda would say like, you have to give yourself some grace. Like you give all this grace to other people. Why are you not being kind to yourself the way that you would treat others? So like you start to recognize all of those things that you're saying to yourself in the mirror. A lot of people like to use, or I've heard this is really helpful is to like, think that you're saying it to like the child version of yourself. Yeah. Like imagine you saying this to the child version of yourself in the mirror, the same horrible, like you're disgusting. You're so fat. Like, why would you even think that you could do X, Y, Z? So like 
if you're imagining that, then it allows you to be a little bit more gentle and realize how awful you're being to yourself. And so you catch the thought. That's the kind of behavioral therapy there a piece where you just you you think that thought you recognize that it's a bad thought and you let that thought go however you need to do that you let it go and distracting yourself is fine like go find something else to do stop looking in the mirror (laughs) go wash a dish like do something anything other than stand in the mirror and talk negatively to yourself because it doesn't do it does nothing for you Mm -hmm. does that help and then you can use the conveyor belt concept for that or the picture it being in a pillowcase and beating it to death, you know, can like, if, if you're good at that kind of visualization, it can really help. <laughs> yeah. I think it makes a really big difference. I mean, Headspace, the meditation app, it, it offers a couple of different visualizations or imagery that you can picture. And like one of them is just like, if you imagine your thoughts as clouds that are passing through the sky. Yeah. And then another one is like almost envision yourself sitting you know, maybe 10 feet away from a highway and each thought is just a car driving along the highway. Love that. That's yeah. That's almost soothing too. Yeah. (laughs) Like the white noise aspect of it all. (laughs) Conveyor belt is really helpful too, right? It's anything that has you realize, Oh, I am not my thoughts. These are just, they're just passing along and I don't have to identify with them so strongly. Right. Or act on them or do anything. So I think like, so for anxiety disorders and some depression things, I think like CBT, like can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. So big on that, but yeah, even though, even with all the therapy, it also helps to have like a partner who doesn't reinforce all of the cultural patriarchal stuff that you've been addicted to for so long. Right. So like, I have a lovely husband who's very like very supportive and it's like, yeah, be 300 pounds. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and I, I have some friends and like some in-law family that are identify as having an eating disorder, being in recovery, like in recovery from an eating disorder, but they still work out a lot and like still watch what they eat. And it's, there's a piece of me and maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel like more powerful or like better than somebody else but like there's a piece of me that feels like until you truly get fat like get in the plus sizes like exist in this world as like not a thin person I don't know if you can really like and then like accept and love yourself in that space Mm. like in that body looking the way that you do I don't know I think I had to like just let myself eat yeah and and get to here before I could like truly heal. I yeah. I I really do subscribe to that. It, it's akin to the I'll be happy when my bank account hits this number yeah. or when I'm at this uh, yes. whatever. It's it's all cultivated as an yeah. internal state, which is the yeah. the tricky thing and and this is actually a great segue to get into personal development and unlearning of two topics that we wanted to talk about today. But Yeah. I think that there's, again, we can get really stuck in binaries of like, there's a belief in personal development that if you aren't like cracking the whip on yourself, then you're going to be really complacent. And that if you, there's also, I've seen a belief that if you accept yourself the way that you are, but you're not like, quote unquote, where you want to be yet, then you're never gonna, you kind of just like, rot away on the couch and don't do anything ever. Like 
right. if you're happy with what you have, then like, what are you, what are you supposed to do? Right. Like what's, what's right. going to motivate you. And so from here, I would, I would love to hear just, you know, you put in the, the, the pre notes to the conversation that you wanted to talk about personal development and unlearning. And I would just love to hear uh, what's, what is your approach to personal development? Oh my God. It has changed significantly as my like body dysmorphia has gotten, as my body dysmorphia has gotten better. If you plotted this on a, the X, Y axis, right? You would see an, an intersecting line. So you would see as my perception of myself has improved, right? I, as I stop hating myself, <laughs> my love and like obsession with personal development or self-help books of any kind has decreased. So I, that this, it started with reading Brene Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. So I'm in therapist's office. I'm having a hard time unscrambling myself from my worthiness at work, right? So, and that feeds into some eating disorder stuff, but like that's kind of in the background it's in a workaholic space. And my therapist says, you need to go get, go, you're a perfectionist. And I said, I'm not good enough at life to be a perfectionist. Like I'm, she's like, that's the most perfectionist thing I've ever heard in my life. So you are, so go get this book, <laughs> go get Brene Brown's The Gift of Imperfection. And so she was not as, she had not been on Oprah yet. You know, this is like 2012 or something. So mm -hmm. she wasn't quite as well known, but definitely fairly well known. I go get her book. I open it up like a, right after therapy, go get the book and, and bring it home, start reading it. And I'm like, I remember thinking this book is so soft, like <laughs> fuck this. Like there's no, like this book is telling me to be nice to myself. Like <laughs> this book is saying that like everyone needs to feel a sense of belonging and that like, there's a cult of busy and like, we're just busy. Cause we feel like we have, and we don't have to be a part of that busyness. And like, uh, maybe we should play a little bit more and not strive so much to like people please. And like, I was like, what are you talking about? This is baby shit. And just like, I remember feeling like throwing it across the room. It was like, this, this isn't going to help me. And then like, two years later, I pick it back up on an airplane. And I think there's something about airplane reading or being on a flight and like when you're journaling or do it, there's certain mm -hmm. things about like airplane thoughts, <laughs> like yeah. airplane processing. I don't know what it is, but I'm reading it on the airplane and I finally like let my, I was like, Katie, just read it. And so I did. And then I just, I was weeping, just weep. I was like, this could be my life. Like my life doesn't have to be this hard. Like I don't have to be this hard on myself all the time. So that was like, that, that was the first crack in the armor, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I still love Brene Brown. Like that's like the kinder, gentler type of stuff. I was super into like girl, wash your face. Yeah. Kind of yeah. And she's problematic as all get out. So definitely not for me anymore. There's also like a very privileged aspect to the vast majority of self-help that we need to recognize as like coaches and people who want to help other people. Like we, there's so much of it. It's like, you can't just girl, wash your face, bootstrap yourself up. If like you're too exhausted or depressed or like, you know, have mental health issues or are working 18 jobs in order to live in your home. Like there's just so much about the, the privilege of self-help that like you're getting in your own way. And I do think that that's true. It's just, we don't have to like 
use it as one more thing to self-flagellate with, right? Yes. Like that's what I want to move away from. So I'll tell you that what I've come to the books that I still love now that I feel are actually helpful because it allows for all that gray area and spectrum stuff that you were talking about, right? So the first one is The Desire Map by Danielle Laporte. And I'm showing this to him on Zoom, but it's like all the notes. This book is beat yeah, up. Yeah. Like this book is awesome because what was the thing that you were saying? It's like, I'll be happy when, is there like yes. a name for that? What would you call it? I don't know. I mean, I would just say it's projecting your fulfillment to the future. I, I don't know if there's yeah. like a word that, that perfectly encapsulates it, but. That's perfect. Yes. The concept of like how we set goals and how we think about self-help or like personal development is very much postponing. Or I think the paradigm is, you know, you are putting your, say that again, you're putting it in the future. You're putting your. I I said projecting your fulfillment, but it's really, you're postponing your fulfillment to a future date. Right. Uh, Yeah. I project. I like, that's exactly it. The desire map is like, stop. No. If that's what you always do, you will spend the vast majority of your life being completely unhappy because you haven't reached that goal. And then every time you reach that goal, there's another one to reach, right? You set a new one for yourself, right? Cause it's all like shame and blame and judgment fueled. Yeah. So the desire map is about knowing how you want to feel is the most potent clarity you can have. So once you generate and think about how you want to feel, you can then you map your desires. I want to get to these desired feelings. Mm-hmm. Then you can do the actions you take every day, do the clients that you work with, do the people that you are, are around, the person that you're dating, the person that, you know, your friendships are, how you spend your time. Is that bringing you closer to those core desired feelings? Or is it blocking you or preventing you from experiencing those core desired feelings? Mm-hmm. And the feelings can change from month to month and year to year. Like I tend to like to do it during back to school time. Like I'll write a bunch of, it's also like a workbook. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm big on that just because like it's mutable enough, to, but it's also a guide. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. It's, so for me, this also helped me change my life and quit my job, the desire map. And I'm a really big fan of two other folks, Gretchen Rubin, her Four Tendencies book. Are you, are you familiar? I haven't read the book, but I, Gretchen Rubin is, I have come across her work and I, I do like her vibe for sure. Yeah. So she, she's interesting. So she has a book called The Happiness Project that was really big, but then the follow-up has been this tendency work that she does. There's four tendencies. You're either an upholder, an obliger, questioner, or a rebel. And spoiler alert, I'm a rebel. So, but all of us in America are trying to be what she describes as an upholder. That's like, you're color coded. You're everywhere on time. Everything you do is nice and neat and orderly, right? Like think of just like 50s housewife, you know, (laughs) walking in like, you know, like superwoman vibes. That's your upholder. But I'm putting some negative, like pejorative stuff on it because I'm jealous. Because I can't, we all want to be that, but we all can't be that. Most of us are obligers or questioners, which is in the middle and obligers, like you take account, like if others, somebody else needs you to do it, you'll be accountable to them and you'll do it because somebody else needs it. Questioners only use internal accountability, which is like, yeah, I'll do it. If you explain to me why it's worth my time, right? 
And then the people on the edge, so the upholders, which you want to be, it's like a nice bell curve. Then the fourth is rebels and we're awful. We just only, you, we can only do what aligns with our values, right? When we say, I am a person who is a good friend, that's an important one for me. Then I said, would a good friend do this or do that, right? Then, but it also allows us like, we can do anything if we value it and align ourselves with it. So I'm big on that, like being real about what motivates you and how you, what kind of accountability you need in order to function. Love that. And then, so that changed the way I do my work so that I can do it in a way that suits me and is making me the best version of myself instead of trying to be what looks right. 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 Yes. So anything that has to do with like building your own authenticity, that's what I'm into. Like that's the self-help or like professional development or personal development that I'm super into. Oh, the last one is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, if you present the science behind the thing and then you just kind of, his is a little bootstrappy where it's like, either you do this or you don't, Mm -hmm. but it's still always presented as like a choice, right? And not, and it is presented without, I think with as little judgment as a self-help book can be presented. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's so much in there. There's one thing that I want to underline a little bit is that there is a flavor of personal development where it's, if not the person who like writes the book and has the podcast is the guru. Yeah. Are they're talking in a way that's like, look how pathetic I used to be and look where I am now. And, yeah. and this is possible for you, yeah. which, which just, it starts personal development from a place of, I hate myself and shame and is, is really pretty toxic, but is just masked in a way that's like, but you're going to be a better person. And right. for a while, I actually did find those people really inspirational and same. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that it's intentional. Like I, I like to be optimistic, but it just, it just leads to that. It, it leads to people accomplishing a lot of things and still hating themselves is, is <laughs> what is the short, the long and short of it. So that was yeah. this one thing I want to underline another part, which you didn't say explicitly, but I think is a really important thing to underline about personal development is that yeah. I think a, a lot of these maps are really helpful. Like the, uh, Gretchen Rubin's map around like you're either rebel upholder, uh, questioner, questioner. Yeah. Yeah. Like, th- yeah. yes, those are great things to, they're, they're good maps, right? They're good. Like, Oh, this is typically how I show up. Yeah. And, like the more I go into development, the more I realize I actually have a little bit of that energy for like all four of those things. Yes. Yes. And depending on the situation. Yes. So like working out, I'll, I'll go to, I will always show up to a workout if there's somebody there waiting for me. So that's obligers. That's what they do. So like in that capacity, that's where I am. But for work, like my work self, I'm a rebel. Right. So I agree with you. Like, it's like you take what you need from it instead of like subscribing to an entire guru's like way of life. And I, I've spoken about this on other podcasts before, but I, I'm wondering if like there, if that's just a natural unfolding of like based on the conditioning that I was raised in, that uh-huh. that's just kind of the way that personal development goes. Like you, at first you're in like, you're usually in enough pain. Like certainly I was, I was in enough pain that I was like, I just need someone to give me the answer, yes. something to do. Like yes. 
ex- let, please lay out the exact morning routine for me to follow. And then yeah. I think there's something about like that being an on-ramp. Like we're not ready for like the further along developmental type of stuff. That's a really good point. And uh, yeah, I, it's, just, it's a really interesting thought experiment of like, but are those people, maybe those people are necessary, but the, it's also a flawed approach. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's flawed, but also like, yeah, you crave that when you feel, but it kind of comes back to control, right? Like yeah, when yeah. you feel, I've been watching a lot of, I've been obsessed with cults for, for a while. And so I promise this relates. Yeah, <laughs> so I think like the because you, you think guru, like you think Tony Robbins. He actually literally has a documentary on Netflix called I Am Not Your Guru. Mm-hmm. Well, throughout the entire documentary, he's like, he's a guru. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. But I think you're right. Like there is something about having someone else unequivocally say, do these things and your life will get better. And you're just like, either exhausted or like you said, in pain and psychic pain and physical pain or whatever, whatever's happening with you. Yeah. Like you just want someone to tell you what to do, lay it out. So my life can have this sense of control in the middle of chaos. I think there's like a, just as strongly as us as humans need belonging, we need to belong and communicate love and be loved. I think we also want to control the chaos right? Like we want, like entropy is here and we are striving constantly as a civilization to undo it, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Or or to get ahead of it, right? So I think you're right. I think that maybe you have to start off, maybe I shouldn't, ooh, maybe I shouldn't judge myself for liking the bootstrappy stuff in the beginning. Yes. But that's what I needed at that time to feel some sense of agency that then allows me to process these other more like gray area spaces and, in, and understand how to incorporate that. Because mm-hmm. I, I read, that's a really good point. Like, so I read Gifts of Imperfection, like I said, in, in 2013 or so on that plane, but I didn't really start doing any of it, like practicing what she was talking about until like two or three years later, right? Yeah. It had to stew and sit in my brain. These were such like, culture crumbling concepts Mm -hmm. that I had to so much that I had to unlearn I think that's where I was getting you know with that prompt earlier is like there's so much I had to unlearn in order in order to get anywhere in order to what I think of is like seeing the truth you know or like seeing or being an authentic version of myself and being okay with that yeah Mm. yeah I'm wondering, I'm finding myself curious about what, what struck you, like what, what made you more ready to be open to the gifts of imperfection the second time around versus the first time around? I mean, two years is, is plenty of time, but it's not in the grand scheme of things, not a, a massive time change. So is there, what, what do you think it was that you were more ready to receive it at that point? I think... I don't know. I haven't processed this. This is so good. This is a great question. I think I was so exhausted. I think I was so burnt out and I was, I wasn't doing anything except working, getting drunk with my friends on weekends, 
right? Like as like social, so it's like big anxiety and then big release, right? So there was this large up and down rhythm to my life, like this roller coaster feeling that like leaves you exhausted and fully wrung out. And I totally, I worked a good two years past when they say like, don't get burned out. It's like, I pushed through that burnout. I got myself an Adderall prescription that I did not, that I do not need. I do not have ADD, (laughs) but I got Adderall so I could keep working, right? And so I think exhaustion slash what I would like to call like just terrible psychic pain. Like I did not, I looked, it, my life looked really good from the outside and I still had great relationships and stuff, but I was like, just crumbling. Like uh, also my dad started to get sick. So my dad had a um, rare form of early onset dementia called frontotemporal degeneration. And he had what's called the behavioral variant. So BVFTD or behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. So it's so rare that they don't even have a nice little name for it. It is just a bunch of acronyms strung together. So dealing with that, like I said, my dad's my hero. My dad always loved me unconditionally. Like the loss of that kind of rock in your life, that kind of constancy, I think brings on like a need to prove yourself in other ways. And so I was pouring all my energy into work. So I think and defining myself in that way and kind of ignoring what was happening with my dad a little bit. So I think owning up, like going, looking at my dad's disease in the face and then recognizing that I wasn't living like a full life and that I was exhausted. I think that it's like, you have no choice, but to go, damn, Renee, you're right. I should be nice to myself and I need to go to sleep. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I think that's, I think it, I think you either like you, you break and either you change or you double down. And I decided I didn't want to live like that anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a part of me that, that wishes that people could wake up without that immense amount of pain or that, like that realization that this shit is not working and, and it expired a long time ago, but now I'm, I'm finally ready. And yeah, and I, I do think that for most people, that is what it takes to wake up, unfortunately. I agree. I think a lot of people, so my, so when you say you were in a lot of pain, what do you mean? You physical pain? No. Well, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. I, it was, it was psychological pain. Yeah. And, and in particular for me, I, without going too far into that, there's been different legs of my journey. Yeah. And, and the first one, frankly, did start from a place of, I don't like my body. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, so but then I you act- find control in that, right? Like there's I something did. you can do about that. Right. And I got back to, I was always a good athlete when I was growing up and I kind of got back into my roots. And so it wasn't from a, you know, I, I, I was not thinking at all about like nourishing myself or self-love or any of the wonderful stuff that I pay lots of attention to now. It was really yeah. from a place of like, I want to look more like most of my friends were in really good shape and yeah. like looked, you know, looked great with their shirt off and had six pack abs and all that. And I wanted to like really get myself there. And, and yeah. I got, I got myself there 
And I kind of got lucky that my, I have good natural self-awareness, I guess. I, I backed into like, whoa, I feel a lot better when I put nutritious food into my body. Like what's all that about? Yeah. And so I started to get really curious about like following that thread and like paying a lot of attention to nutrition. And so eventually I did get the pain that I was actually referring to when you, when I brought it into this conversation was more, I'm really miserable at work and I'm making everything on paper looks exactly the way that it's supposed to look. Yeah. And my externals are good. I was dating my, she was then my girlfriend is now my wife. Like things were really great in my life and I was fucking miserable at work every day. So that was the pain that I was in. And that's, yeah. And you have to figure out what's, what is, what's that static, right? Like what's that, what's, what's blocking you from that, like the joy that you can feel. Right. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think that's huge. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause it's like, usually if you're in this much psychic pain or you're doing this much, like I keep saying psychic instead of psychological, there's this great <laughs> song. There's this great song by this band that doesn't exist anymore. That's from when I lived in Nashville, Tennessee called Pujol P U J O L. And there's a song called psychic pain. And like, I really love it. I'll, I'll link you to it. But anyway, I keep saying that because it's in my brain, but yeah, I just don't think I don't think you have to go through it in order to be that self-aware, but I don't know. I I think a lot of people are in it and they don't be, but because it looks so good on paper, they can't listen to themselves and the the voice inside that says like, this isn't actually bringing me joy Mm -hmm. because the external is much more important Mm -hmm. in our culture in many ways than the internal. Yeah. Right. So like, it's really fascinating that you're coming, like you, you came to self-realization through like self-actualization through eating and taking nourishing your body and thinking about it in this positive way, like accomplishing a goal, getting some, you know, self-efficacy, self-confidence because of that. And then, you know, thinking about the other aspects of your life, like that, that's your journey. And mine is almost like polar opposite, but still ending up in the same place, right? Like in order to relieve pain, that you feel in order to like to me it was like I missed my old self like I missed there's like a version of me inside that's like sparkly (laughs) like is all I can think of and so like I I hadn't seen that sparkly version of myself in a long time right it was like I was performing had some layers on so I like I just miss her and like, I wanted to get her back, but like, but we can't, but me, I had to learn. I can just, I can eat cereal whenever I want. (laughs) I don't have to count every calorie. My friends will still love me and want to be my friend. Like I actually had a whole journey for that when I was doing like, this is only a couple of years ago. I was like, I'm getting fat. Now my friends aren't going to like me. Like they're, I'm getting to the point where they're going to notice I'm fat. (laughs) Like they're going to care. And I talked to my therapist about it. And when I said it out loud, it sounds so stupid, but it's, it was a legitimate, like deeply held fear that I had. And so she's like, go tell your friends, like go next time you see a friend, you have lunch, dinner with them, tell them that that's a fear that you have. And she's like, let them allay the fear for you. Cause I promise you, if they're good friends, they're going to, they're going to give you some incredible love and some incredible responses, you know? So like, 
think that's the other thing talk therapy or CBT is good for. It's like you say the stuff that you didn't realize you were keeping inside. You say it to your therapist and your therapist is like, that's a lie. <laughs> that's just that's just not true. Stop saying that. <laughs> Go ask your friends if that's true. And they're all going to say, that's a lie. I love you. I don't care what size you are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if they don't, then they're probably not a very good friend. And yes. now you know that and mm-hmm. you can sip, sip. <laughs> <laughs> so it reminds me of, have you heard of Byron Katie's The Work before? Okay. Yes. I read that one in 2015 or so, like around the same time I'm reading the gifts of imperfection stuff and I'm letting it stew. I read that one and I, there was something about it that I didn't love. I remember searching like, is Byron Katie a cult? Like, uh-huh. <laughs> like looking into it. Cause I uh, tell, tell me about her basic premise because isn't that a little, like everything is actually your fault you could get there but it it does it does as you've been talking about cognitive behavioral therapy it does very much have a cbt component to it where yeah i actually haven't read her book before um i'm not super familiar with her but the work is just a line of questioning that asks in this order is it true if you take a thought is it true yeah can you be absolutely certain that it's true yeah how do you feel when you believe that to be true or when you believe that thought? Yeah. And, and who would you be without that thought? And for me, I think that that can be a really powerful framework. Again, like there's a, we could, we could always check the privilege of, you know, that some people don't really have the privilege to create that distance. Like, right. Like, right. It, whether or not it's true, it's fucking happening. But like, right. <laughs> whether or not it's true uh like i'm, I'm gonna lose my like house a, if i don't I'm pretty do much this. in danger yeah <laughs> yes but, exactly yes but for for like uh you know my friends aren't gonna love me if i am really fat like the, it, i find that to be a helpful line of questioning to distance yeah. yourself from the thought and i like anyway. that no and i think even in even in scenarios where you don't where I don't relate, or I just was like, this is not for me. Like reading it, I just, I remember she's documenting, asking people those questions and what, what their answers were and what that process was. And I was like, something about that did not sit well with me, right? There, it just didn't, it wasn't helpful, but I could see how it totally could be helpful to somebody else, right? So I shouldn't knock it. And when I was Googling, is Byron Katie a cult? I, I was like, anti-cults at the time and not not to come out and say that I'm pro-cult okay but I used to be very I used to be fascinated by them because I was like how could anyone let themselves be controlled in that way right like that would never happen to me mm-hmm. and now the more I watch it the thing that I described of like when the world is chaos and everything is uncertain and you just want someone to tell you what to do. Like it narrows your world down to a manageable size. Yeah. Like that's what a cult does, right? So it's like, I had, to, I had to have this realization, like it was only about a year ago or so where I was like, no, Katie, you could totally have been in a cult. It just depends on, did it have the right kind of like, was it a fun sex cult with like some fun drugs and weird breathing and yoga? You probably would have fallen into that cult. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, but 
like, is it the one where you have to wear weird outfits and talk to people on the street? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that one, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, the, the realization there, and then I, I want to segue to another part of the conversation that I'm, I'm really excited about. But I think the realization there is that we all are like, we have these unconscious uh, scripted beliefs and patterns that like we didn't have agency or choice over. Like we're all kind of being guided by things that we didn't really choose in some way. And when you join a cult, a lot of times it is, it's what you said, right? That it's the world, my world is so chaotic that this gives me some place that like it, it cultivates belonging. Yes. And in a lot of ways, it, uh, it identifies a reason for the reason, like why you're suffering and that yeah, there's a like, certainty. Oh, great. Yes. Yeah. I know exactly who to blame now. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> And, yes. uh, in a weird way, it's uni- unifying. And I, I always say this, I mean, I don't want to be painting in two broad strokes, but like, in a way, s- professional sports is a cult, right? I mean, like, yeah. The, yeah, the way that we root for teams, and it's like, oh, you know, in New York, it's like, you see a Red Sox fan on the street, a Boston Red Sox fan, and it's like, fuck that person. <laughs> <laughs> fuck a Patriots fan. Fuck Tom Brady. And it's like, you, we don't know all the only thing about that person that we hate is that they play on a professional sports team that yeah. we root against. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, that's even more like the flavor of it in South Carolina. That's a little bit even more extreme and relatable is like Clemson and Carolina or any of the college NCAA football things like, dear Lord, there are people who will not speak to you like whose families were disappointed in them for going to Clemson, even though it's a better school because their entire family has been Gamecocks, right? Yeah. Like that's a legitimate, that's so bizarre. It's very arbitrary, but I think that's like human social animal stuff, yes. right? Yes. You're totally right. It's a sense of belonging. I never got, oh my God, I do not care. Like in, in, in South Carolina, if you can't say you're a Clemson fan or Carol, they call it Carolina here, but like not a Gamecocks fan, people will look at you like you have three heads. Like. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> uh, good job, boys. You're very yes. athletic. I'm proud of you for being students and athletes. Good job, everybody. I do like like the hot dogs and beer aspect. Like, uh-huh. hell yeah. Well, the the last part, and and at the very end, I asked a couple of more rapid fire questions. But the last thing that I wanted to go over with you about the work that you do, because it's it's pretty near and dear to me, is Talk about healing through public speaking. <laughs> and I was well, wondering this is if- new. This is like a new, this is, I was calling it lately. This is my shower thought, baby. So like mm-hmm. this is a, so I've developed a course called Inspired Speaking with a business partner named Shannon Ivy, who does storytelling work. She has her master's in fine arts in theater. She used to teach theater. She's like a union actress and she's a coach also. Like she does, you know, coaching for folks, life coaching and business coaching. So really cool lady. We met through doing some nonprofit work and, but I've had, I've been thinking about figuring out how to make public speaking less onerous, less terrifying, and how to figure out a way to make it work for you. Cause at a certain point in your career, 
depending on the career. But for a lot of people, especially a lot of women, there's a certain point at which you need to be able to communicate your ideas clearly in front of an audience, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's in a board meeting, whether it's, you know, presenting something at a conference, like we're not all doing TED Talks here, but we do have to confidently speak publicly in front of strangers and communicate and get our ideas across, which I think is a fundamentally healing thing is to be able to say what you want to say to an audience and have them hear, process and respect you, right? Like to communicate something and have them understand it to another person. I think that's both like a a deeply human need and also this like gorgeous feeling when it happens. Right. So I think maybe it's a desired map part, right? Like that I was like, how, how do I want to feel when I'm speaking publicly? Right. So in my 20, like mid 20, so I went to grad school. Okay. I did undergrad at Clemson, pre-veterinary medicine, took three years in Nashville, Tennessee to do whatever I wanted after I graduated with my undergrad, didn't know what I wanted, waited tables, started a nonprofit with my friend, super fun, awesome, great time. But I was like, I need to like figure out what to do with like my career and my life. So I went to school of public health, applied to a bunch of different public health master's programs, got into the one at USC cheaper. So came back here to Columbia, South Carolina to do that. And then right out of grad school, I love public health science, love it, still do. Right after that, I got hired at a foundation and I just had like a meteoric like rise through that foundation, like started off as a policy analyst and then doing like conferences, sex ed work, and then just was presenting to the board within a year change. Anyway, I was doing like Mm -hmm. a lot of the work that I always wanted to do. I was a feminist scientist, Mm. but I had basically built my entire academic life around avoiding public speaking, Mm -hmm. right? Like what can I do so that I'm more of like the expert or the person behind the scenes, but I don't have to stand up and talk about anything. However, as I I started getting better at my job and I started needing to be able to translate research into a way that the board would under the board of directors of this foundation would understand it and make good decisions based on it, right? Because if the board didn't understand what the teen pregnancy prevention program results were saying, then they would make bad decisions like to not fund it anymore because certain numbers were down when that's not the real story right? The real story is that like certain outside things happen. So the numbers went down a little bit, but we still prevented X amount of pregnancies over this many years. So like being able to present that and have influence on the decisions of these folks to either fund or not fund millions of dollars really ingrained in me, you've got to be able to convince someone of something on stage. And I just had to figure out a way to be comfortable with that. So I'm not like this insanely introverted person or anything. It's, I think it's just the natural, you don't want to public speak. You don't want to mess up. It's just a, it's the, it's the fear of failure, like just visualize, like it's the easiest way to visualize (laughs) public rejection, right? It's just standing on stage and bombing. Mm -hmm. So I have been thinking about this for a long time. I was like, what would I have wanted? How would I have wanted to be trained once I had that realization that I needed that skill? What would have made it not just less painful, but like 
empowering. Like what, how could I have used it to make myself feel more confident about who I am, what I know and how I show up in the world? Like there's a way that it does that, right? And so I came at it from like a bass backwards sort of way of like, I realized it after I just figured it out, you know, and had to throw myself in the deep end of like speaking publicly in front of the board and, you know, stressing about it and losing sleep. What would I have loved to have had at 26, mm-hmm. you know? And my thought what my is like, I would like a smallish group, six to 12 women, And I say women because there are particular barriers to being heard and understood in a professional setting for Mm. women versus men. And I just think there's a, what I'm going for is comfort as much and safety as much as I can. There's that concept of psychological safety and like inclusion, workplace effectiveness, you know what I'm talking about? Leadership. So like, how can I create psychological safety for the folks there? And so that's why it's easier to start with a group of women and, and work from there. And I wanted different types of professions in the room so that we can get extra good at communicating clearly. Because if I, as a public health person, can explain something to an accountant who has no idea what morbidity or mortality means, right? If I can still explain a public health issue and get them to understand something, I'm doing it without jargon, very clearly in a straightforward way. And that's the highest level. That's very difficult to do, right? That takes to say something, isn't there like an Einstein quote about that? To be able to explain something simply is actually much more difficult than like solving calculus on a blackboard, you know? Um, So just realizing that it's not easy, you have to practice and you have to figure out your own way of standing in your power on stage and that it can bring so many other things to your life and your professional life. Uh, that was my dream. So, okay. Different professions of women all in the same cohort. doesn't matter really ages because everyone could practice this, right? How can we do skill building in a safe place where it's a scaffolded learning experience, right? Where yes, we're talking and learning some basics, but we're really doing exercises to just like be more in our bodies, right? Because you can center yourself that way. And then you figure out what do I need to be the best public speaker that I can be? Because when I looked at other options like Toastmasters, it's much cheaper than my course, but Toastmasters, what it ends up doing, if you have this arbitrary set of rules when you present, and you get graded. And I don't think that's fundamentally flawed, but you, if you do something like put your hand in your pocket, you get points off. In my version of public speaking, that's good. A hand in a pocket is not a problem. You just have to figure out what you need to center yourself. You just can't have like fun, shaky hands in front, <laughs> right? Like, you no, know, that makes, uh, that makes people in the audience uncomfortable. Like, so you're not, there, and if having your hand in your pocket allows you to control your nerves in a certain way, then, then let's do that, right? So to me, it's like a customized, strengths-based, skill-building, safe space for women to practice public speaking skills and actually do a speech, get recorded doing it, get feedback from their peers who have no professional skin in their game, right? Mm-hmm. So again, more trust. Because it's not like you're 
doing this in front of other people in your office who may be up for a, the same job as you or up for the same promotion, or there's this hierarchy and this power structure. To me, this undoes that and puts us all on the same level, right? And I wanted to bring some somatic things into it, which is why I wanted to bring the theater expertise of my partner, Shannon, into it because I was like, I can talk about content and like, I have this framework, but I can't teach some of the things that I think are critical, which is just like how to get into your body, how to do some improv, like how to feel on stage, what to think, where to stand, how to look at yourself, right? Yeah. And theater people are the best at feedback. There's like a very consent-based, gentle way of doing feedback because on stage you have to give and take feedback from other actors or you will not everything if you suck and your team doesn't tell you <laughs> you're not you can't be in the play, the play one function so like there's this deep understanding of that and I think we're, we're both scared of public speaking and we're afraid to both give and receive authentic feedback so this breaks both of those barriers and puts it into action in a way that we can like as professionals come out of it with this sense of confidence and a sense of just knowing that you're going to be able to communicate what you want to communicate. Mm. Yeah. I really that applaud. Makes, it makes, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I, I really applaud what you're doing and, and just a, a couple of personal notes for me. I mean, sure. long time listeners will already know this, but my, the first coach I ever hired was actually a public speaking coach who had, uh, who has a feeder background and, and she's actually been a guest of my show. I, I then had I'd love on. to talk to her. Yeah. yeah. I'm happy to put you in touch with her. Yeah. And there is something about, again, I, I don't know what it is about me. I kind of, I, I think sometimes I just get lucky, but I really backed into like, there's something about her presence that I was drawn to and I uh -huh. started working with her and that safety was always foundation for me. And yeah, something that you touched on that is so why I think public speaking is so healing or can be so healing is because yeah. at the, at the core of it, at least I'll speak personally. I had the, I was just terrified of being seen like, and being yes. found out. Yes. Like I'm a yes. fraud. This is going to actually be put on display. It's amplified because it's you're in front of the room and it's really yeah. primal, you know, like yes. not that many generations ago, it actually would have been off with your head if you fucked up in front of an audience. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. <laughs> so it's like in a way now, like our, our hardware hasn't adapted with the times. It still feels yeah. like we're going to actually physically die if we mess up. Right. And That's the so signal. Your brain is sending those signals. You're right. Yeah. Your amygdala <laughs> is a fucking on fire. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. And uh, <laughs> for real. So the, the healing components of, I mean, just doing a few sessions with her, it was, it was quite expensive and it was early in my career. So I didn't continue, mm -hmm. but it, I started to get comfortable being seen in front of another person. And, and like yeah. you, I had spent my whole life avoiding public speaking. Really, truly. I mean, I, I got through it in, in the ways I needed to, but right. at best, I was really struggling, having nightmares about it the night before, getting through it, and then was like counting down the days until I had to do it again. It was, right. it was that bad. Yeah. And so, I think most people can relate to that. I think that's, that's the, not, not to say that you're average by any means, but like, I think that is the normal general feeling of the public <laughs> i think so too it's yeah. it's a, a lot of uh statistics cite that 
public speaking is feared more than death. Right. right. I really do believe that. And the, the best course that I, I've been a part of Toastmasters, but the best course I ever did sounds a lot like yours. It's, it's called the Public Speaking Center of New York. And it, I don't know if it was as regimented around the, the number of people. Like, it didn't have a, a 6 to 12 container, but it was very much everyone who's here. It was no more than like 20 people probably in any given class. Sure. Everyone who's here is really also scared of public speaking and we all belong here. It's okay that we're all scared, right? So like that was the container that was set. Whereas Toastmasters, which I eventually did when I was more advanced and I think there's really benefits to it, but- Totally, not hating on Toastmasters. For someone who's like really petrified of public speaking, Toastmasters can just be like reopening the wound over and over again because a lot of people there are excellent public speakers. I'm scared to go to to Toastmasters. (laughs) It's very intimidating. Yeah, like I, uh, you know, so yeah, it is. It can be, yeah. But um, anyway, all that is to just say that it has, you know, being becoming a better public speaker has been profoundly like shape shifting, transformational for me, and I really, really applaud what you're doing and the the space that you are creating because it does, it just permeates into all areas of life. I, I just feel like a more confident and self-assured person because of my ability to reveal myself yeah. in, in front of people. And it's vulnerability, the power of vulnerability is something that we haven't explicitly like die, dove into, but- That's, it, the, Brene, that's the Brene Brown like foundational concept though. So I'm sure you've been over that with your people yeah it is it's the power yeah vulnerability and and being willing to lay it on the line in front of people is really like the hallmark of confidence and it just it it, life just feels way more possible and fun when when you're able to do that I wholeheartedly agree you were gonna say and I interrupted you with my little comment what did you find useful about Toastmasters because you said you entered when you were a little more advanced and Mm. it wasn't like for beginners but what did you get out of it Toastmasters for when I was a little bit more advanced, it it helped me really zoom in on maybe taking greater pauses and my tonality. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's more specific. I also want to like put an asterisk next to it. And I did a really small intimate Toastmasters. So Toastmasters could be like 60 people. It could be hundred people, like really massive ones. And that's a different ball game. Sure. I joined one that's like on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, someone's apartment. And it was like anywhere from seven to 12 people on any given night. But so what I liked about that setting was like if, if I put as a goal that I wanted to be a podcaster, like we could have developed a curriculum around me going that route. Whereas right. the first course I did was basically like, it's like what we were talking about personal development. I was just like, please like stop my heart from pounding from new york to california please right tell me what to do so i can just focus on that and not focus on the millions of other things that my brain's trying to scare me with right now right exactly yeah so i mean we're not going to get folks to go from terrible to incredible ted talkers by the end of this the point is to increase that comfort level Mm -hmm. so that you can get to a point where you can if you want to focus on things like pauses and tonality, I think we will, because we're working with, with women and some of them are a little younger. 
and we are going to record. People have to give a, the kind of the pinnacle of the course is that we have a stage at our Columbia Museum of Arts, like little theater, and it just looks like a nice little lecture hall, um, but it's auditorium style seating. We're going to have a, a, a video camera, and we're, you're going to present something, whether with slides or not with slides, however you want to present on something that's that's relevant to you. You've got a five to eight minute presentation and convey a point, do it, get recorded doing it, get live feedback from a panel. I've got about four or five uh, just professionals, not even like necessarily great public speakers, but just professional folks, right? That are like great in the community, having them to give some feedback. And then you have to watch yourself. Yeah. Because like the one public speaking course that I did take was with within my or was in that foundation where I was working and we did a we did a course over two three days it was very useful because it's the fundamentals but and she made us do a small pitch or small speech about something recorded it and made us watch it and come back the next day so I fully stole this from her because I hated it I hated every second of it but I was like I needed to see myself because there are some ticks you don't even know that you have yeah so like I was licking <laughs> I was like licking my teeth like a lizard like <laughs> I can watch it and mostly I'm fine but like there was my mouth was getting dry and my upper lip was like turning underneath on my like and getting stuck on my teeth sort of so I would lose that upper lip and I could feel that happening and so I would like like take yeah my tongue and like wet that area of my teeth and I looked like a reptile so like you but nobody was going to put that in the feedback like I needed to know that for myself that I need to have water when I'm speaking so that I don't have to lick my lips like a desert animal (laughs) (laughs) yes it's it's a very valuable thing to do as uncomfortable as it may be to Uh to watch yourself. I have watched myself many a time. I'd listen back to my podcast to see how I can improve. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's not easy, but it helps me get better. So I always remind myself of that. Yeah. And before we get to the closing, there's, there's been an undercurrent of almost everything that we've spoken about today that feels important to me right now. And I, I just want to bring it in is there's there's a way in which like everything that we've spoken about today, where you're, you're taking yourself on a journey to go from maybe not a very proficient public speaker to a great one, or to like get to a certain, to a weight that you want to be at, or to be a certain point in your career that I think self-love is, is the place to start from. And to realize, like I'm realizing now that one of the great things about the public speaking course that I did was there were some, sometimes there were people who were really more developed yeah, and were right. like excellent. They, they had been doing the course for years and they were kind of just going to get the reps back in and all that. Fun right. Stuff. Cause it's a skill. You have to build it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was a, the instructor did an incredible job of saying, you know, he is you guys. He's no better than you. Right. Love that. Yes. And then I would add a layer on top of that, of from that, something that I got from coaching from my, my first and favorite coach, Jeannie Sullivan, who ran me through a bunch of assessments and she does strengths-based leadership. So it's that, it's the Gallup poll, yep. you know what I'm talking about? It's this Gallup strengths finder. 
Thank you. Yes, the strengths finder. And so I basically like that was so empowering for me, that idea that like you you don't need to worry about as much about improving the things that you're terrible at. And instead, what are your strengths and focus on you improving those so that you can be excellent in, in here, right? So I think like, how can we do a strengths-based version of a public speaking style that's authentic to you and that like you can maybe, if you hate doing slides and you're not graphically inclined, outsource that, yes. you know? Get someone else to do it. You focus on presentation, right? So like how, and so instead of thinking that you have to be everything to everyone and be amazing at all the different aspects of a specific task or profession or whatever, realizing that that's ridiculous and impossible and instead focus on the things that are going to make you excellent and stand out. Yeah. Right? Yes. So like, so yes and to what you were saying for sure. Yeah. Yes. And I think the, the other bit that I wanted to say about this is like the way that we, I, I hear it said all the time to talk to yourself the way that you would talk to a friend. And sure, yeah. I've just, I've seen so many times that if like, if I was sitting in the class and someone was kind of freezing up in front of the room that I really, I had a lot of empathy and love for them. And if I envisioned myself doing that, it was like, I would have, just been relentless and beat the crap out of myself yeah and so i just i i wanted to invite in that it's this practice of like just being with yourself and accepting yourself as you are the way that you would with a friend is is really a powerful one it's like it, it's foundational for everything for me now i agree i love that i think you do have to have like a sense of what a good friendship and relationship is, which, you know, we can have a whole other yeah. show about masculinity and how boys are taught yes. of what they're taught about connection and love and belonging and friendship and no homo and all of those things. So like, I think that you're totally right. Like we, I think about the next generation of men, right. Boys that are going to become men. And my hope is that like, they will understand what that friendship is like that and that it's women too, of course, like to be able to have deep, long lasting friendships yeah. and like understand what that looks like and how that feels so that you can then treat yourself just as well. Yes. I think like we still have some steps to go culturally, right. Before we Great can point. like use that, even though you're completely right. I'm just saying like, mm. I, I worry, I worry about the boys. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not you guys. There's the people who don't talk to their friends very nicely either. But so it's, it's a great yeah, point. Sure, sure. But so uh, Katie, is there anything that we haven't discussed already today that you would like to bring into the conversation? No, I feel like I've been talking your ear off. This is super fun. <laughs> this is like my favorite. Mostly, usually not everybody's super into like talking about self-help or like self-actualization. Like, it, like they don't necessarily, it's almost too scary, right? Yeah. Like. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk very openly about that journey. Well, this is, this is the place for it. I I'm all for having the long form conversation about personal development. So I just have one or two more questions for you. I was in a course, but we were speaking about how I work with Yotam, yeah. uh, Yotam Schachter before we jumped on here and, and Yotam just led a course that I was a part of. And it was around self-coaching and being a coach for yourself. And one of the sessions I did, he asked the question, the prompt, 
when was a moment that you felt truly loved and mm. what was happening in that moment? And I would love to hear your response to that question. But I've been so good and I haven't cried this whole time. Like I've almost cried like twice, but you can't ask me that question and not have me cry. Like that's, <laughs> I literally have a picture of it. Can I just show you the, a picture of it? Yeah. Okay, I know that's weird. Um, and then you have to describe it for the listeners. Yes, we will describe it for the listeners. All right. Oh, I'm gonna cry so hard. This is my dad. <laughs> this is uh, me. So I'm probably four years old. Uh, my dad is holding like a little wren, like a wren that had fallen out of a nest. So like this is indicative of um, like just growing up with parent who wants to show you things that they love and connect with youth so that you can love them too, you know? Um, so I think being, being in nature, <laughs> um, thinking about existing in the outdoors in a natural space, like with um, my dad teaching me the names of things, teaching me about different types of rocks. He was a geophysicist. So I think, um, just those like childhood natural history lessons basically and being able to share that and to ask questions freely and not be judged for them. I think like that, that's a really strong core memory of like feeling unconditionally loved, right? He's showing me these things because he loves them and you don't show, you don't show things that you love to people unless you deeply love them and trust them, right? Mm -hmm. It was like an opening, right? It's like an opening to have a relationship is to be like, I want to show you these things <laughs> that I think are interesting. I hope you find them interesting too. So like, yeah. that's an unconditionally, to me, that space of like curiosity and nature, like is like a, an unconditional, is a space for unconditional love and bonding. Hmm. Well, that is incredibly <sighs> beautiful. And thank you very much for sharing. I could <sighs> I could take you off the hot seat and, and maybe uh, I'll, I'll give more of a softball, sillier type of question. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> what is, what's something that people would be surprised to learn about you or, or maybe like something that something funky that you enjoy doing or something, something weird about you, just like anything at all that comes to mind with that question. Well, I was captain of the women's fencing team at Clemson. That's uh -huh. super nerdy and weird. I went to the Junior Olympics when I was a kid, but that's which sounds really fancy. But it's because I'm from the South. There weren't other, that other. There weren't very many other young women that were fencing. <laughs> so, but that still made me, you know, feel special and fancy. And I found a sport that I loved. It's like physical chess, basically. Yeah, I like and am interested in a lot of different things. Like I. I always have been. So like, I love to paint and draw. And that was one of the big pieces, just harking back to the beginning of like, when I read Brene Brown, I was like, I haven't painted anything or drawn anything in over six years. Like, why, why can't I, I don't have space or time or energy to play. So like, I, that's been like a priority for me is that like, where, how can I be creative? Oh, I'm also learning Reiki because I love colors. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to see if I can be a Reiki practitioner because I love it. think in terms of colors and I yeah. desperately wish that I had synesthesia. I would take LSD in college so that I could get that sensation. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
No. Synesthesia is when your brain processes one sense as another sense. So certain people can hear music and they see co- they see a color instead of is associated with the music. Mm. And it's like this very intense neurological thing or they see a person and think a color. Anyway, uh, I like drugs and art. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, before I ask the very final question, Katie, where would you invite my listeners to connect with you? Uh, you can find me on my website, www.z-strategies.com. You can find me under Katie Zenger, Z-E-N-G-E-R, um, on LinkedIn. And that's about it. There's no other social stuff for me. Just my website. Um, email me. Yeah. Love it. Well, I'll link to all of that and all of the resources, the many resources that we mentioned, which are awesome, in the show yeah. notes. And sure. the final question that I ask all of my guests, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And so I would love to hear in your words, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? I think it's an authentic life, right? Like authentic vibes would be so hard. The idea that you are true to yourself and the things that you love and the things that bring you joy, a meaningful life is one of ease, of connection, and of of authenticity. Like that, there's the feeling that you get I don't know if you get this, but like feeling that I get when I know I'm doing something that either I'm good at and that I value what I'm doing, but I'm doing who I know I am. Mm -hmm. Is that, that's a, I get it. Bad sentence structure, but it's right. I feel good about that. Your search for meaning is being who you know you are. (laughs) I can happily share. I mean, I, I get that feeling doing this podcast. it just oh, I love that. Yeah. The, the two hours or however long the conversation goes, it, it almost always just flies right by. And, and I really do feel like I'm doing a service for other people. I'm doing yeah. something that lights me up and brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. And, and there's, there's an intersection of I, the icky guy is the concept of like, do what you're good at, what you love yeah. and what you'll, what you can get paid to do, I think is, I mean, that's, that's like the Americanized version of a, a <laughs> way more layered and nuanced Japanese concept, but that is, uh, that's, that's what I feel like I'm doing with this podcast. So it, it rings really true to me. Sentence, sentence structure aside. So, <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, you're a very good interviewer. Um, I felt very well taken care of and you're a great active listener. So thank you, Katie. I, I really <laughs> appreciate that. And yeah. It was, it was really a pleasure to have you on. You're a fun guest. You just have like an easy energy to connect with. And I, I know that that probably serves you well in all of the areas that you're really interested in. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. That's really nice to say. And to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, I hope that you have a great rest of your day or evening and take good care. Lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.